Someone have a schedule? You have a schedule. What, what time am I supposed to go to on this? 1 30 to 2 30. Okay. So I'm in an hour. All right. We'll start then. All right. Well, let's uh, start. If you're in this room and you're um, ready to talk about keeping kids from going woke, that's my summarization of the title there. Uh, we can talk about that. If, if you want to talk, though, you can go in the lobby or the hallway there. Oh, thank you. Yep. Well, I'm going to start by introducing myself a little bit here for those who don't know me. Uh, I know some of you do. Um, how many of you have heard uh, my podcast, Conversations That Matter? Okay, wow. Okay, most of you have. All right. Uh, so for, for those who haven't, real quick, and maybe some of you who listen don't know, my wife and I, uh, she's actually going to be here soon. She had to go print out something for me. But we, we live in upstate New York in the Highlands, New York area, which is between New York City and Albany. For the last four years, we've been living in North Carolina and Virginia. I went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, and then for, for my MDiv and then uh, moved to uh, Lynchburg to go to Liberty University, and I got a Master's of History there. And that's where I did more of my formal study on social justice and specifically social justice infiltrating Christianity. And it was, it was really difficult. I, I was, uh, maybe like some of you, I was upset at what I was seeing, and I wanted to just talk about all the preachers, like the current preachers who were pushing this social justice agenda. And I remember my, uh, my advisor from the program told me, like, you're in a history degree. You know, you, you're not doing journalism, you're doing history. So you need to study something that happened in the past. And so I ended up studying the social justice infiltration that came in in the 60s and 70s. And I didn't even know that existed until I started studying it. And, um, and I, th there's a few books that are, that are written by leftists about this, but they're, they're not the greatest in my mind. Uh, and so um, Social Justice Goes to Church is one of the books. I don't have a copy with me, but we're going to have a special conference deal. I'll ship it to you. It'll be cheaper, and that'll be at the table later. Um, so, I, so I wrote that. That was part of my thesis. I, I changed a few things, added an appendix, and then... Put that out there and a lot of people were helped through that in understanding what was actually happening why is my church going woke what i don't understand how people could integrate social justice with the gospel it doesn't make sense uh, and so that was a journey i was on to try to answer that question and i feel pretty satisfied that i was able to help at least answer that and uh, thankful for the godly men that helped me in that as well uh, the, the book that i have out right now uh, that i just put out last fall is called Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. And I definitely stole from Jay Gresham Machen. And for those who are familiar, uh, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism during the modernist controversy. And his whole thesis was that liberalism is not Christianity. It's a different religion. And that's my thesis, that social justice isn't Christianity. It's actually a different religion. And um, this is a book I usually tell people you know, to get first. I kind of wrote them backwards. So if you want to understand what's going on, you want sort of apologetics uh, to, to deal with it, Christianity and social justice. If you want to understand how this happened historically, social justice goes to church. Uh, and then we also have a DVD um, that you can, again, I, I sold out of these things. I was at a conference before this, and I didn't realize we would sell as many as we did. But you will get a special conference deal if you want one, and that's uh, Enemies Within the Church. So that's a DVD that just kind of catalogs what's happening within the last five, ten years and kind of how we got to where we're at. 
So those, those are just some resources. But uh, yeah, like I said, my wife and I live in upstate New York. I'm currently attending a Bible church up there. People sometimes ask me what denomination I'm part of. It's non-denominational, pretty close to a Baptist, though, church. And uh, I'm involved with ministry doing uh, music. I play guitar and try to sing. And then um, also culinary. Uh, we have the Culinary Institute of America practically in my backyard. So it's the premier cooking school of the entire world, which is really great because, uh, you know, they are now, the students are starting to cater some of the meals at church and stuff when we have a fellowship. So anyways, I, I disciple a student there and go to their meetings when I can. And uh, that's, that's a big blessing. I've been doing uh, campus ministry off and on for like the last uh, 15 years or so. So ever since I, I started college as an undergrad, I've been involved in that. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I am sunburned, as many of you can tell. I do like outdoor sports too. And I, I didn't think about walking eight miles in the snow on a bright sunny day up in the Sawtooth Mountains. So that's why, that's why I look like this for those who are curious about it. But um, let's start with a word of prayer. And then we'll talk a little bit about this subject of raising children and preparing young people for social justice. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have here uh, to talk about an important topic. I know this is a hard topic in some ways. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would use the words that I have and that you would uh, even put in my mind words that maybe I don't have right now, but you want your people to hear. We thank you so much, Lord, uh, for your saints. I thank you for... Uh, the commitment to truth, which is why I know the people here are here. And Lord, I just pray that it would bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title I was given is Preparing Young People for Social Justice Issues. And um, truth be told, I called my parents, uh, I guess it was two nights ago. And I said, you know, I'm given this topic. I'm going to speak on preparing young people. I said, I feel like you should talk about this. I mean, you know, I have two brothers. I mean, you had three sons. None of us are woke. So, you know, what did you do? <laughs> what's, the, what's the secret to it? And, um, and, they, and they said a lot of the things that I was already thinking uh, that, that I want to go over with you. Some of it's cultivating a family identity and, you know, making sure that, uh, peop- you know, your kids are thinking critically and examining things. Uh, with the test of scripture and, and reason. And, and so we'll, we'll talk about more of the specifics of, of what that might look like. But um, I just want everyone to know I'm coming at this not as a parent who's navigating this with children, which I, I know there's a whole set of, there's wisdom in that, right? But I'm coming at this more as someone who's watched friends that I grew up with kind of go down the woke hole. And, and, and I've tried to think through, okay, why, why did some go that direction and others didn't? How come I wasn't attracted to that? My family, my brothers weren't attracted to that. How come some of my friends weren't attracted to that? Or they could see through it. And then others just, I mean, <laughs> at different rates, but some just immediately took hold of it. And, and now I'm ashamed to say in some ways that friends that we had, some that you would have thought were the godliest, are now the most woke of anyone I know. I mean, they rejected it hard. And, um, and so I want to get into that because I have put a lot of thought into this. I do know... Some of the circumstances that I think may have uh, at least catalyzed this or, or led to it. And, um, and then also, um, the, the other thing I bring to this is just a, a little bit of a background in history uh, and then a background um, in, in theology. So I'm not an expert on all these things in my mind, but I have studied them, I think, enough to, to maybe give some, some pieces of wisdom on this. And, and these are certainly things that I'm going to be applying with my children uh, as they grow up. So... What we're going to talk about, we're going to review some biblical principles on raising children. 
We're going to examine the unique threat and way social justice infiltrates children's minds. And uh, then we're going to discuss ways to immunize against social justice thinking. So how do we prevent children, and then as they grow up and they become young adults, how how do we prevent them or at least give them the tools they need to navigate this topic so they won't fall right into it? And again, this is all out of love. This is not because we just want to win for the conservatives, right? Or we, I, I'm actually pretty, I know this sounds dismal and maybe uh, pessimistic. I'm kind of, unless God does a miracle in this country, I'm pretty much satisfied with saying, you know, I, I don't think we're winning the political battle. I don't know, how many of you saw, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you saw, what was it, I think it was night before last, on Twitter. I don't have Twitter anymore, but I have a million people on Twitter who send me things from Twitter. And there was a conservative, right, commentator named David Rubin, and he's a homosexual. And he uh, put on Twitter, him and his, I guess, quote-unquote husband in his mind, that they're having children. And under this tweet, right, is the Blaze TV, right, Glenn Beck's group, the Blaze, right? Congratulations, David Rubin. You know, way to go. You have PragerU. Any of you ever watched PragerU videos on YouTube, right? PragerU. You know, happy to hear that David Rubin, you know, it was all congratulatory. You had Megan uh, uh, McCain and Megan Kelly, and there was a, a number of other Fox News and OAN even uh, correspondents, all just congratulating David Rubin. And I thought, these are supposed to be the conservatives. These are supposed to be the people fighting for traditional values. And with that, it's not traditional, it's Christian values, Christian understanding of reality. And here they are. Uh, acting like the left acted about five years ago. And at that time, it was radical. And now the conservatives are saying it. So I'm, I'm kind of to the point in my mind where I'm, I'm, this isn't about a political battle. Although, yes, I'm involved in politics. I want to be a prophetic voice in that arena. This is about something even much more important to me. This is about the gospel. This is about a false religion. And it's just like in the Q&A when I said that this, this would be like if you lived in a Mormon-saturated area trying to prepare your children to deal with Mormonism in the same way we have to prepare children to deal with social justice because it's just as much of of a threat, if not more, because you're seeing it in more places. It's going to be coming through the television and through social media and through billboards and news, um, newspapers and magazines. And just, it's pretty much everywhere you look, there's social justice going on in 2020 when everything uh, started after the George Floyd incident, I remember I was getting emails from companies I hadn't frequented in probably a decade telling me how anti-racist they were, right? You can't get away from it. It's all out there. So in order to prepare children for a false religion, you have to teach them about that false religion and teach them where it contradicts Christianity and why we believe Christianity. So that's that's really my heart in this. Uh, This isn't just about a political thing. There's real lives that are in jeopardy in my mind. And I've seen it. I can, I can bring faces to mind as I talk about this of friends that have gone down this direction and it's not done anything good for their lives. In fact, it's just made them more bitter. They're, they're less satisfied than they've ever been. Even when they politically, their side is winning, they're still not satisfied and there's no joy and they're, they're, it puts them in a very bad place. Sin always leads to more sin. So we want to we want to prevent that. We want to shine the light of truth, the light of the gospel, especially uh, the light of biblical ethics onto this movement. So let's start with the problem. I've already been talking about it a little bit. 
this will have an upward trajectory. I decided to start with the depressing stuff so we can get to the more optimistic stuff. The problem is something that's probably familiar to a lot of you. Number one, there's a fallaway rate, right? Lifeway Research, that's Southern Baptist, Lifeway, says, said in 2017 that 40%, 47%, excuse me, 47% of young people from Christian households say moving to college played a role in dropping out of church. So about half of young people from Christian households. That's pretty startling. I think about the youth group that I was engaged in when I was in my teens. How many of the people in that youth group are still in church? And, and this number seems about fair to me. About half of them left. They went somewhere else. They're not in church anymore. They're not, for all effective purposes, they're not Christians. We have Barna in 2019 saying that two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds who are active in church end up dropping out in that time period. So two-thirds of young people who were involved in the church, in Christianity, active, end up dropping out. Only a third is retained. Now that's startling, right? We can evangelize, which we should be doing, right? We can go make disciples of the nations, which we should be doing, and send missionaries out there. But what does it say about Christian families if, if they can't even keep their own children involved in the church? Or I mean, there's some, something seems wrong with that, doesn't it? Something seems off about that. And, and why is that? And there could be many reasons for it. But this is a known problem, and it's been known for a while. I think Ken Ham, if I'm not mistaken, wrote a whole book about this. And, and he, I think, primarily blamed Darwinist thinking. Uh, but it, it's much wider than just Darwinist thinking. There's, there's a lot of other threats out there. And children are, when, when they become adults, when they have their freedom, when they don't have to use the Christianese, many of them end up showing that they were fakes or they end up uh, gaining experiences that they were prevented from having previously. And now they want to go further down these other experiences and, or maybe hang out with different groups of people. And, and so whatever the, the, the purpose or the cause is of this, it is happening. And with that happening, I think this is tied to it very much so. There's a shift left. In 2006, uh, Arthur Brooks, a social scientist with Syracuse University, said the political right is having 41% more kids than the political left. Now think about this, 41% more kids. Conservatives, people who vote conservative, have way more kids than people on the left. And we would expect that. People on the left tend to think that overpopulation is this huge problem for the environment. We shouldn't have too many kids. They tend to live more urban lifestyles. People who are conservative tend to be in more suburban or rural areas. Uh, sometimes even having kids is an asset. They can work on the farm. I mean, there's, there's all, a whole host of reasons. But um, one of them is also religion. People on the right tend to be more religious. And children are a gift from God. They're, we have a command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Children are not the curse of the world, causing global warming and causing uh, the death of the planet. They're actually a blessing. So that's a completely way of viewing children. And so conservatives having many more kids. So you would think that would translate into political victories, that conservatives, that their children would carry on their values and that you would have much more conservatives and liberals eventually or progressives would just die off because they're not having as many kids, but that's not the case. Researchers from North Carolina State, Ohio State University, and the Interfaith Youth Corps found that entering college, 
58% had positive attitudes towards liberals. So of the, the, the students entering the university, a little more than half believe that liberal, they see liberalism or they see people who are liberals in a positive light, politically speaking. Exiting though, when they graduate, 70% have a favorable view of, of liberals, political progressives. Now, evangelicals, a similar thing's happening. Entering, only 44% have a positive view of liberals, but exiting, 53% do. And you can see similar numbers with other groups as well. Uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, it, it's the same kind of thing. So this is, we're, we're talking about this in a Christian context with, with the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. This is a problem, though, that other faith groups, other false religions, we'll just be blunt about it, are also having a problem with. How come our students are also leaving the faith? How come they're not retaining the political views of, uh, and, and the moral views, I should say, of their parents? So this is a societal shift that's going on. Now, the question I have is, should we be even surprised about this? Is this a shocker to anyone in this room? I mean, I don't think so. I think we all kind of know. We, I didn't even have to give you probably the statistics. You know that this is something that's actually happening out there. You probably have faces that you can bring to mind of uh, people that grew up perhaps in your church or your family, raised with good morals. They knew abortion was wrong, and now look at them, right? They, they're actually supporting abortion and candidates that further those kinds of issues. A 2020 survey from the National Association of Scholars found that for every dollar college professors donated to a Republican cause, they donated 21 to a Democrat cause. Okay, $1 to a Republican cause, $21 to a Democrat cause. And that's just a general survey of scholars. This isn't unique to particular fields. Some fields are much worse. <laughs> you get into the discipline that I was involved in in history, it gets way worse. You get into any of the social sciences, it's way further to the left. So we're taking into account um, you know, people who are experts in physics and math and these kinds of things, which generally aren't quite as tilted. I remember when I was uh, going to undergrad. Now this is, uh, I'm trying to remember when this was now, <laughs> when I first went. So the, I guess the mid-2006 or so, I guess, something like that. Um, this was before there, were, that there was hate speech rules that applied to homosexuals. I mean, that's, that's I, I, I know I'm young, but I, I feel like it's a different world out there now. Um, even then, though, I remember just going to a local community college and our professor, our, I think it was our um, social science professor, and it was, it was a course that everyone was required to take, told the whole group of students, right, young college kids, that what they needed to do over the weekend was to go experiment with homosexuality because it's a whole lot more safer for you than heterosexuality. And the way that it was justified is she said that if you take into account worldwide AIDS statistics, most people are heterosexual who have AIDS because you take into account Africa and they just count that as heterosexual, I guess. So therefore you're safer if you're homosexual. And that's, this was a great thing. And this is just one example I could bring many up to you in many different classes of the way that my mind was perverted. Literature classes were like that. Um, Everything was a double entendre to something dirty. Uh, and, and, and these are your authorities. These are people that are telling you, you know, they're the experts. They're telling you how to read a piece of literature and interpret it. Um, Marxism was very much championed. I remember literally Karl Marx was my professor in social. Uh, this is, again, the same course told us Karl Marx was right. His analysis was correct. <laughs> and I'm just like, 
I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. But, you know, I, I had been raised in, in the church. I was homeschooled. We were very involved in the community, but most of the people that I was involved with weren't, weren't that far left. And so when I got to college, um, seeing Marxism and evolution and just the immorality uh, was, was a little bit, it was different for me. I, I hadn't experienced that before. And so uh, when, when you're not prepared for it, I can only imagine what that does to someone. And I, and I did see friends of mine. I saw students uh, go into that environment, and they didn't fare so well. They weren't ready for what they were about to hear. And it, it was new thing. It was new, new concepts entering their mind, new ways of thinking about reality that they had not considered before. And now all of a sudden, this expert that my parents are paying thousands of dollars for me to go learn from is saying my parents are wrong about just about everything they told me growing up. So is it any wonder? I remember thinking, I, I can't believe anyone goes through this process and comes out the other side a conservative. Politically, or even as a Christian, comes out the other side holding on to Christian morality. I just couldn't. I mean, I did. There's a few of us who did. But, I mean, we had to kind of stick together. And that was back then. Now... I'm discipling a student from the culinary right now, and we were meeting a few weeks ago, and I just asked him about his roommates, not for any particular reason other than it was a witnessing opportunity. Have you tried to share the gospel with your roommates? And he said, well, two of my roommates are transgender, and then one's homosexual, and he only has three roommates. And I, I said, are you, you pulling my leg? He goes, no. He wasn't joking. He goes, that, that's, that's what I ended up with. And... He said that the homosexual roommate, which is the one he shares an actual room with, goes by preferred pronouns. So, and I was kind of like, well, you know, that's kind of silly. Like, you don't actually call him that. And he's kind of like, actually, it's hard not to because I'm hearing it all the time. The other roommates are using they, they and there to talk to this individual. It, it, I, I didn't think anyone would ever go for that. It sounds ridiculous, right? But if you're in the habit of hearing it all the time and, and it becomes normalized, then even someone who's a Christian can very easily start doing that. So he, he attempts, and, and we talked about it, but he, he was already attempting at that point to try to use uh, the first name, right? Don't even use pronouns. But the, these are the kind of challenges that are just normal now for students who are Christian who go away to, to colleges. And so um, all that to say, when, when you have the, the tilt that far in one direction, I mean, it's no wonder to me that students are going to start shifting on, on the convictions that they supposedly believe before once they get to college. And Christian institutions, I hate to say this, they're, they're not much better in every way. I, I went to Southern, uh, Southern Baptist School, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and part of the reason that I'm even here talking to you right now is because I decided to make a video back in 2019 about what was going on at the school. And I had just graduated, and I just went through about an hour and a half my entire experience there. And I just wanted students to know who are coming into the school, you're going to be told this is about biblical fidelity and it's a mission school. And what you're going to also find, though, when you come is they're not telling you about this, but you're going to find a very strong social justice movement. In 2017, it kind of was like right after Trump's election, this, this became really popular. But in 2017, the fall semester, three statements either supported heavily or actually they originated in, in the campus itself, from the administration and faculty, were made against Donald Trump or the alt-right. Three. In eight years of Obama, there wasn't one. So in one semester, right after Donald Trump is elected, three statements against Donald Trump, essentially. Uh, I remember the, this new center, I think it started in 2017, called the Center for Kingdom Diversity, was hosting all kinds of events, supporting the kneelers at the football games, 
Um, they, they, I remember they had a guy there who was arguing against some of the historical monuments and secular media was even picking this up. Look at this conservative Baptist professor uh, making these arguments, the same arguments that, that they're making. Um, I remember the, um, there was an article, you, when you would go log into your student account, there was, uh, the, their blog was right there. You'd see everything that they would you know, put there. And there was an article one day, I remember my wife and I uh, were sitting, I think, next to each other on the sofa, and I, I had logged into the account, and it was, um, it was a whole article about all the ways that you are a racist but don't realize it. And it was things like if you live in a neighborhood or, or you go to a workplace that is predominantly white, you know, you, you probably are guilty of some racism. And it was funny because I was thinking like, well, that applies to Southeastern. Like, you know, they're mostly white and I've seen the churches they go to. But, but they're still importing this radical thinking into the school. Uh, illegal migration was another issue, right? So these were all, this was all happening in like 2017, 2018. I was watching this. And I decided to come out about it. And after I did, I had people from all over the country, I was shocked, messaging me, especially Southern Baptist institutions, telling me, John, it's the same thing's happening here. I can't say anything. I'll lose my job. I really appreciate you saying something. And I was shocked. I, I thought a few people who are interested in Southeastern might see the video. It might help them. Instead, what I found out was this was everywhere. This was, to use one of their words, systemic. This was affecting the denomination and evangelicalism um, as a whole. And so as I started doing more research for my podcast and for, for, for this book in particular, I started finding I really couldn't find a Southern Baptist school that I could recommend. Maybe Mid-America, but that's not even officially Southern Baptist. It has a tie to the Southern Baptists. But any of their main schools, I couldn't recommend any of them. There's, their critical race theory is on every single one of their campuses somewhere. Um, and since then, I've seen this with a lot of colleges. So I went to Liberty University. I'm giving you my experience, but um, there, Liberty University, even since I've left, in different, it's like a city. So every department's different. I had a great department in the history department, but some of the other departments are going that way full bore right now, uh, or they're attempting to. Um, and that's the, the biggest Christian university, I believe. Uh, this morning, I even got another message about Grove City College in Pennsylvania. And, it, and it's, it's something I don't even have the time to review because I get so many of these things all the time. Um, so I'll spare you the details, but all that to say is that Christian institutions aren't doing a whole lot better right now. They're, they're behind, right? They're, I mean, you're not going to hopefully go to Grove City College and then have a situation like I described for my friend who's in the culinary. But they're, they're, they're the tail. They're dragging. They're, they're you know, they might be... Uh, on the pendulum, they're, they're behind, but they're progressing in the same direction. They're, they're running in the same uh, flow and, and on the same track. So this is the problem that we have. And I submit to you that this is an off-ramp from Christianity. Because if you are inculcated into that kind of thinking, and then you know, we, we have to be equal. We have to, to make sure that all these disparities are eliminated. And that means taking money from your parents and giving it to, to these people. Or that means uh, that we need to have a reparations program. Or that means that the church needs to uh, diversify its theological library to reflect women uh, because it, it's historically been against women. Or any of the issues that are coming up, social justice issues. If you really buy into that, truly, then why put any brakes on it? Why have any barrier there? Why say, well, I'll go that far, but no farther. I'm still going to be part of the church. 
That's like the Ku Klux Klan saying, you know what? We're a pretty bad organization, but we've just reformed ourselves. And we're, we're getting it right now. And our, the generations before us, they got it wrong. They were racist. We should all condemn them. And now you should be part of our organization because we got it right. Who's going to join that? That's just a great argument for leaving the organization. Why would I want to be part of you guys? Democratic Party's doing a whole lot better on pursuing justice if, if that's what our definition of justice is. So I think what's happening is there's a substitute going on. A lot of children growing up, they are familiar with Christianity. They understand Christianity, and social justice gives them something very similar to it. And I'll get into some of the details as the conference unfolds, but it's, it's familiar. There's justification in it. It's not real justification, but they can feel good about themselves. They're doing something to alleviate sins from the past. Uh, there's some, some form of charity. It's not really your own charity. You're stealing other people's money to do it. But uh, there is this, this compassion, you, you, sort of. It, it's a false compassion. It's always inverted. It's different. It's distorted. But it feels like Christianity. And it's a substitute church, ultimately. Political activism becomes the church. In fact, uh, a friend I'm thinking of, a uh, very strong Christian at one time, we thought. And she, she went and got involved in some of these Me Too rallies and via the BLM stuff as well. Remember, she posted on, uh, I think it was Instagram, that this was her church. She had all the churches in the area that she had been part of, she eventually left because they weren't down with the revolution enough. They weren't eliminating disparities and forwarding equality enough. So she ended up leaving and then going to, um, going to political activism. So that's the situation in colleges to some extent. Uh, people ask me sometimes, what do you recommend? I, I have children that want to go to college. And, and the, the fact is, I don't really know. Um, I, I would say first, teach your children, right? And we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, prepare them for this. But um, I, I do have some specifics. Uh, and, and for this part of the country, this may be far. But I usually tell them Appalachian Bible College is pretty good. From what I understand, and that's because I've had conversations with people high up that actually are running programs, and they were really early on trying to prevent CRT from getting in there. Um, another one is Southern Evangelical Seminary in North Carolina, and you know, some depending on your denomination, you may not agree with everything there, but they are taking a very hard stance against social justice publicly, and I look for that, and I appreciate that. A lot of other people will send me things from seminaries and say, John, this is a great seminary, it's a great Bible school, it's a great college. And I'm all, I always have the same question. I'm like, could you send me their anti-social justice statement? Or have they signed the Dallas statement on social justice? Or can you send me anything, any public stand? And usually there's no public stand. And I'm like, well, they may not be woke, but if they're not taking a public stand on this issue, then I don't think it's going to be too much longer before they are. So I can't in good conscience necessarily get behind that. But, but those are two names uh, if, you're, if you're looking for a college. And there may be a bunch more that I don't know about. Uh, on the high school level, uh, we, we have the same kind of problems, of course, in public school. That's no mystery. Um, unfortunately, in Christian private school, this has become a problem. ACSI, the biggest Christian school accrediting, uh, accreditation agency, has pretty much gone woke at this point. And they're using a professor from Southeastern, Walter Strickland, to give diversity training lectures to uh, their, their teachers. And I watch them, and they are CRT. <laughs> they're liberation theology and critical race theory. So uh, we made a stink about it, some of us, but it doesn't seem to change the minds of ACSI, unfortunately. So uh, social justice thinking is pervasive. We talked about it in education. Um, 
There, there's a, a lot of other places we could talk about in the media. Uh, traditional and social media employees give 90% of political donations to Democrat causes. 90%. So that's, that's your Facebooks, your Twitters, your NBCs, your Fox Newses, you know, all that stuff. That's vast majority uh, lean left of the people who work in those particular industries. Um, social media, I've had uh, a lot of shadow banning. For those who don't know, that means I can post something and people won't see it because Facebook has switched a lever. And they're nice enough to let me know when they do that. They'll tell me, you spread some fake news. You said that you know, the virus was, was you know, not as dangerous or something like that as, as the CDC says it is, therefore we're switching off your influence. Um, you also have advertisements, and these are filtered, right? So they can show you the things they want to show you, uh, and, and some of these ads can be pretty bad. Um, I remember, too, uh, and I won't get into big details on this, but um, there's three points in my life where I was – firsthand, I was at an event that the media covered, and then I saw the report, and I realized they completely lied about it. So one of the things that I think – Children have to be have to know they have to have a healthy suspicion of some of these institutions, and they need to know why they they need to have a healthy suspicion of these institutions. They need to be able to think critically uh, when when they do encounter uh, narratives uh, coming from these places. So all that to say, we're at the low point now. <laughs> There's a concerted effort to corrupt children and turn them against their churches and parents. There's subliminal messaging. Um, but there's also now a lot of overt messaging. It's, it's a long way since the Disney times when everything was subliminal. Uh, society um, also doesn't reinforce Christian values. So that's where we are. So what's the solution? That's, that's I think, what everyone's waiting to get to. What's the solution to this? Uh, do we just live in a cave somewhere? Do we get a bomb shelter and say, all right, kids, you're going to grow up. And there's a movie about that. I can't remember the name of it. There's a movie I saw years ago. They raised a kid in a bomb shelter during the Cold War, and he comes out and he's an adult and he doesn't know how to interact in society, right? Is that what we do? Just raise someone in a bomb shelter? Um, I mean, I, I want to move to like the, out, the, the, the uh, wilderness areas of Alaska. Like that's my dream in a way. I probably would hate it once I get there because it's really cold, but like in my mind, right, that would be a really cool thing. I'm, I'm away from all that corruption and I get to work with my hands, but is that really the solution? Is, is escapism the way to go on this? And I would submit to you no. And unfortunately, some Christians do take this route. And it's not wrong to try to, to, to put some barriers and some sheltering there. And, and that's, that's perfectly acceptable. It's good. It's fine. I hope you have internet filters. If you have kids in the house, right, that's all good. Um, but, but taking it to the extent of we're going to uh, create a situation where our kids, as they're growing up, aren't going to be corrupted at all is just impossible. Because Jesus said corruption actually comes from within. You, you still are left with the corruption there. You're still now they're not going to get as many ideas about how to be corrupt, but there's still the problem is in, in the heart, ultimately. And the people who have done this uh, haven't necessarily always had good results. In the study I did for Social Justice Goes to Church, what I found was the majority, actually, I think it wasn't even the majority, it was all of them. Every single social justice activist that promoted this thinking in the it was called New Left Thinking at that time in the early 70s. Uh, was from a conservative Christian household. Every single one of them. Ron Sider, Richard Mound, Jim Wallace, uh, Wes Granberg-Michelson, Sharon Gallagher. These are all names some of you aren't familiar with, perhaps. But they were very influential, and they still are influential. For instance, Tim Keller is, gets a lot of his thinking from Richard Mao. Uh, 
Russell Moore and David Platt love and respect Ron Sider, right? So there's these, um, these influencers from the 70s have continued to have an influence today. But in every single case, they came from these conservative Christian households. And I, I got to thinking, why is that? How come the people I know who have gone hardest woke are people from the most sheltered households? I, I'm just telling you, I, I don't have a study on it. I'm just telling you from my own observation. Um, the, the people who rejected wholeheartedly everything that their parents told them came from the most sheltered and usually legalistic households. Everything was a sin, right? And, um, and, I, and I think there's something to this. So um, I'll briefly tell you before we get on to the solutions here, but I'll briefly tell you the reason I think that is because they switched out one form of legalism for another, all right? So it was very easy without the heart involved, without true genuine conversion to fake it, to live and to abide by the rules, right? To be a good Christian. That means I, I follow these extra biblical rules and nope, I don't drink alcohol and nope, I don't. Uh, I won't go to a theater or I don't know, whatever the rules may be. It's different for every group. But that's what Christianity became. It was just reduced to that. And they never, the attitude, that rigid attitude never stopped once they became social justice warriors. They, they're just as legalistic. It's just they have a new moral law now. And so you must be equitable, diverse, inclusive. And if, you're, if you don't meet the standard, then you're, you're an outcast. You know, you're, you're a horrible person. So, so they, they've kept on, they're, they're actually not as different from their parents as they like to think sometimes. I think that's one of the reasons for it. But um, sooner or later, they're going to be exposed. Even if you're in that cave, they're going to they're gonna grow up. And would you rather have them growing up and knowing something about what they're about to face? Because you, as a parent, you've brought them through it. You've engaged uh, the material they're going to be um, looking at in a critical fashion and you've shown them what Jesus thinks about this and what the Bible teaches about this and why we believe this is wrong and this is right and what's the most loving thing, or do you want them without any knowledge of what's on the other side to just go out and learn to swim in the deep end? <laughs> that does not work, and I've seen that. I've seen that with friends who have gone off to college with no preparation, and they just fall into uh, all kinds of, of debauchery because they never were prepared in the first place for what they uh, should have expected. So solutions. All right. Number one, uh, set expectations. I think, I think this is the first thing that's important because I, I know parents who have a lot of guilt and, um, and, and parents who have done a really good job, right? They've done, not no one's perfect, but they've really raised their kids. They've uh, set an example. They've taught them. They pray for them. And in the end, their kid ended up not just going woke, but perhaps rejecting Christianity. And I'm reminded of a verse in Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 2, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, if God can figuratively talk about children that he's reared up, that have rebelled against him, that is, and God's perfect, that is not necessarily a reflection on the parent. So I just want to say that from, from the get-go, that some parents, you know, you can do the best you possibly can, uh, with what you have, and it doesn't automatically mean your child is going, there's no formula, right, that is going to prevent your child from rejecting Christianity and joining the social justice mob. That, that can still possibly happen. That's always uh, a possibility. And I think this is where humility comes in, as hard as it is, and just to give it up to God. God is in control, and it just, you take that to prayer with you. Um, and, and hope, too, that you know, your child eventually is going to realize. That does happen quite a bit. <laughs> it's the prodigal son, right? The 
child is an adult now, comes home, realizes, hey, mom, hey, dad, you were right the whole time. This was a dead end. I I wore out my welcome everywhere that I went. So um, some will bring up Proverbs 22.6 here. And I just want to briefly say that is not a guarantee. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. And he shall not, when he's old, he shall not depart from it. And there is a proverbial truth here, but it's a general truth. Proverbs are general truths. This isn't like a guarantee. Um, and there's also other ways of interpreting this first that I think are perhaps more faithful. Uh, one is that this is a warning to parents that like the, the, your, your child's going to continue in evil if, if, you tr- if you train them up wrong. The other, another interpretation is that this is just in general about setting habits, wise habits. But either way, no matter how you take this verse, it's not a blank, it's not a guaranteed promise that if you do all the right things, your child's going to turn out great, and they're not going to go down the social justice uh, hole. That may still happen. That that could possibly happen, and that's where um, humility comes in, and we just, we pray to God. God, you're the one in charge. You're you're the one that knows the hearts of men, and would you please uh, persuade my son or my daughter to walk in your ways and to receive your gospel. Uh, you know, I can't do that myself. Number two, though, is we can influence children. So even though it's not always a guaranteed promise that a child's gonna turn out in a certain way, you can't uh, predict that. There is a, um, There are general truths in the Bible about child rearing. And the main one that I think most people go to is Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. It says, Hero Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. So, context here, children of Israel going into the promised land. And the danger of going into the promised land is there's all these pagan religions around there. And what did the children of Israel do? (laughs) What did they keep getting in trouble for? They kept syncretizing with them. They kept saying, we're going to worship Yahweh. Yeah, but we're also going to do this over here. We're going to do it in a way that uh, God hasn't authorized. And it was just this merging of pagan religions with the true religion of Yahweh. And, And so this is the instruction that's given as they're entering this area, this danger zone in some ways, this area where they're going to be tempted. And a few things I want to highlight about this. Um, the first thing is to love God. Kids see hypocrisy, right? So loving God is really key, I think. And no one's perfect, all right? No one is going to be, we're all hypocrites to some extent. But someone who's a real, char- characterized by hypocrisy, someone who says that they're a Christian and looks great on Sunday. And I've known many parents like this where uh, they show up and and no one would know any different. And then during the week, they're not consistent. They don't live as Christians. Kids see that. And the kids who see that hypocrisy, and and this happens sometimes in the most legalistic homes, right? Because you can always put on a face. You can act like you're, you're keeping a rule, but then it's not here. It's not a love for Jesus that's motivating this. It's, it's a, uh, a reputation to keep up. It's an image you, that you're trying to cultivate. So kids see that. And so loving God is authentic. It, this is going to permeate your life. Uh, if you like sports, I don't know what, I don't even know what team. I'm not big into sports. I'm trying to think, what, what's a big team around here? Boise State. <laughs> Boise State. All right. So if you're big into Boise State and your whole family, like we're a Boise State family, right? Do you have to like, 
in your schedule, figure out, okay, when, when are we going to talk about Boise State? We need to have our Boise State time every morning before breakfast, right? No, like, uh, and, and if you're really into Boise State, you know, maybe you do have your Boise State time. I don't know. When a game's on, you're going to sit down, you're going to watch Boise State. But it's going to just flow out of you naturally if you like Boise State, right? It's going to come natural to you. It's going to just bubble over. So I think loving God and, and all the different habits that this passage outlines shows that this is something that just it, it permeates. It influences every area of your life. It's not something that's forced. You know, we did our devotions, now go do, you know, whatever you want that, you know, that your heart wants to do. It's, 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 you're still, Jesus is still with you. So I think that's, that's a very important piece of this. Um, and I'm thinking through also what my parents were like. Why did, so, so I have another brother who's a Christian and serving in the church. Then I have another brother who is not a Christian, but definitely not woke. And I've, I've thought of this quite a bit. Why is it? that none of us went down that path. It's, it's surrounding us. It's everywhere. We had plenty of opportunities to, but especially my brother who's not a Christian, right? My parents couldn't change his heart, but he still has a respect for the church, a respect for God, a respect for the family, not a Christian. Um, but what, what is it that I, I think part of it is he, he did see hypocrisy at the church, but he knew my parents weren't hypocrites. He, knew, he knows there's something to it, and he doesn't like talking about it sometimes, I think, because it's it's convicting. He knows deep down there's, there's truth in this. And so the witness that a parent has, I think, to their children in just the everyday life of living um, and, and being real, you know, pointing at saying, hey, I'm, I'm flawed. I did that. That was wrong. Daddy sinned. Right. But but not being fake about it, not trying to keep up some kind of uh, false facade, I think is very important. So loving God, um, repetition, of course, is here. Um, Family devotions, I think, is important. My, my parents did do that uh, pretty consistently, taught us hymns, um, taught us scripture. It doesn't have to be long. It could be 10 minutes in the morning or in the evening, whenever. But um, there, there does come an age when that kind of ends because everyone's busy and, and they're transitioning into adulthood. But when it is possible, that's good uh, to do that. Um, and then in this context is also a national identity. It's not doesn't jump out of the text we're reading, but it's just in the in the context of Deuteronomy. This is a nation coming in, and God's giving instructions not just for a family; He's giving instructions for an entire nation. So everyone around them would have had the same command, and the fathers would have been teaching their children this, uh, whether it was next door or you know it, it, some other part of Israel. So, um, I think having a firm identity is a is a key component to this. So. Uh, loving God, not you know, seeing reality and not hypocrisy, and also having a sense of belonging, I think, are very important uh, in the formative years. And that's something I know I had. That's something my brothers had. We knew who we were. We were Harris's. We were Americans. We were, um, we, 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 and even though becoming a Christian truly, and my parents made sure we knew this, was, was something between us and God, they, they encouraged, um, we knew that Jesus' rules were important for our family. Okay, so yeah, I may, I may not be a Christian yet. I haven't received Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I know that we obey God's law in this family. So there is, there is this family identity uh, that w- created a sense of belonging and rootedness. So that's number two. Um, so number one, set your expectations. You know, you, you can't be perfect. Number two, though, you can't influence your children. Here are some of the ways you can and then number three, I think, understand the appeal of social justice. Understand the appeal of social justice. And this is, I think, probably the, the most 
uh, important and unique information I have to share with you in this whole talk. Fundamentally, what is social justice? It is a rebellion against the creator. Fundamentally. All right? Now, this, in this conference, um, in some ways I feel like I'm doing things backwards because I'm giving you more definition to social justice in sessions which are to come, especially tonight. But let me give you some brief thoughts about social justice. And, and I, I know I defined it earlier. Let me define it again. Social justice is a scheme by which the goal is to create an egalitarian or an equal or a utopian vision for society. There's, there's a goal, right? So progressivism, right? We're progressing towards something. What's the thing we're progressing towards? It's this social justice. It's this everyone's equal. It's this, this fantasy, really, but it's this, uh, this heaven we can have on earth, okay? Christians believe we, we die or Jesus comes back and there's the heavenly state. There's the eternal state. Social justice is humanistic. It's, it's actually at root, it's materialistic, and we got to have it here. We got to have the heaven here on earth. So we got to constantly be working towards it, okay? Now, there's all these barriers to it, though. Your family could be a barrier. I mean, inheritance, I mean, parents passing down money to their children who pass it down to their children, that's not fair. Some kids don't get that opportunity. Or how about your ge geographical location? Do you have access to healthcare and to schools? That's not fair. Other kids don't have that. Or perhaps uh, white privilege, right? That's the one that's being talked about a lot now. Or whatever the case may be, whatever blessing God gave you in your life is not actually a blessing from God. It's, it's flipped into a curse. It's some kind of unfair advantage that you got through some illicit means. And it may not even be you. It might be your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. But somehow you've ended up, if you're in the oppressor category, with stuff that isn't yours. This creates guilt and a sense of shame. And fundamentally, this whole scheme is against God because it targets institutions that God has ordained. How about the police? Government does not bear the sword in vain. We're going to take the sword away from the police? How about the family? I mean, that's the building block of society that God instituted. We're going to redefine the family? Say that boys aren't boys, girls aren't girls. We're going to deconstruct gender? We're going to uh, take a civilization that has advanced, not just technologically, but in many ways, morally and, um, and, and uh, financially, and we're going to take that, that culture, that society, and then we're going to try to destroy it simply because it has stuff that other societies don't have. That's the whole BLM thing. It's... Um, fundamentally, what this does is it takes the providence of God and it makes it a dirty word. That's, providence is just a justification for pillaging and evil people and, and what they've done to poor, helpless uh, victims. So it's saying, God, I don't like the way you designed this place. I don't like the institutions that you created. I don't like my place in them. In fact, I feel pretty guilty about it. And I'm going to rebel against that. And so pride enters in pretty quick. What's the motivating factor of all sin? It's pride. I know better. I know better than God. Uh, I, can, I, I like the way that I envision society. I, the dream that, that, that I want to carry out is better than the vision God has for the world. And the appeal, along with the pride, and it's, it really strokes the ego, is counterfeit virtue. This lie that you're good. I'm better than my parents. Maybe you had an axe to grind with them. 
Maybe you always felt inferior because they were always better than you in so, at something. Or you, you never lived up to the standard that you thought you should have lived up to. Well, now roles are reversed. I'm going to create a standard that my parents can't live up to. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to remind them of that. And I'm going to denounce them because they can't live up to this standard. And I feel pretty good about myself. And I didn't even have to do anything. Didn't have to give my shirt to a homeless person. I didn't have to financially contribute to anything. All I had to do was view this position, whatever it may be, in the right way. I support homosexual marriage. My parents do not. Therefore, I am better than them. I am morally superior. I mean, that really strokes the ego. There's pride involved in that. Some of the hooks that social justice takes advantage of, a desire for belonging, the lie that you can get a better deal outside of your family, outside of your country, in this, this artificial environment uh, that, that, that you can be part of making, this new Tower of Babel that you're going to build with everyone else that's on the same agenda. Uh, compassion. There's a hijacked compassion. The lie is that our solutions are better than God's. I know socialism has never really worked, but if we just try it this time, in the, according to these standards, we can make it work. And it's, you know, don't you, don't you care about this poor person? But instead of actually going and helping that poor person tangibly with your own finances, social justice emphasizes this grand scheme that takes the money from some people and gives it to others. And the middleman is always the one that makes out, not the poor person. How, how, how do these hooks come about? How, how do children and then adults, how, how do they fall into this? And, and the answer, I think, is uh, there, there's a, there could be a number of reasons, but I, identity plays a part in this. If you don't have a strong family identity, a strong uh, pride in your country and, and uh, some of the things that make you you and your local area, those kinds of things, you can shift your identity more to peer pressure, your group of peers that you're in, the new group that you found in college, right, and what they think. And pretty soon you see yourself as with them and not with the familiar uh, success is another one. So you, you see your educators, perhaps, and your entertainers, and look how successful they are. And this is what they believe. And you start worshiping that and thinking that's important. Some, some parents have unwittingly given this value system to their kids without realizing it's going to backfire them on them later. Uh, and I've seen this in the homeschool groups, by the way, where it's like, our kid is, he's 12 years old and he has a PhD. Now, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I went, to, I went to college a little early, but I remember that competition of parents like Junior has this great score on the SATs. And what does Junior start doing? Junior starts thinking, that's the way to get my parents' approval. Yeah, I'm going to just keep, you know, I'm going to get into an Ivy League. I'm going to really try to, and then where does that end? Uh, it, was, it was the kids that ended up usually doing the best uh, from the earliest ages. I remember from when I was growing up that ended up becoming the most woke. And I think it, that might have been part of it, is they were, they were taught this value system. You value the person who really made it high in the academic ladder. Well, who are those people? I mean, you just read you the statistics. We know who they are. They hate God. So that's not, not a great value system to teach kids. So, um, so one, set, it, set your expectations. Number two, influence your children. Number three, understand the appeal of social justice. And then number four, cultivate a family identity. And there's many ways to do this. Uh, we would go to the graves of our relatives and decorate them. Well, I don't know if we decorate them. We would go to them, though. Uh, hear the stories from the elderly in our families. We would sit there and listen. We'd, um, I remember um, when I was young, we had this special plate, right, that would be given to whoever's birthday it was. They were special. And sometimes there would just be, we're going to celebrate this person because, you know, they achieved something at their soccer game or whatever. And it was, I'm part of this family, and this family is supportive of me. 
And we go around the room and talk about what we're grateful for, for that person. Um, we, we studied American history quite a bit. You don't have to be a nerd, but, you know, go see the battlefields, see the, the price that it took for us to enjoy the liberties and freedoms that we have, the legitimate liberties and freedoms. Um, there's many more things I could probably add to that, things that I'm not even thinking of just because it was so wired into the way I was raised. But I think that was probably one of the biggest things that kept us, especially my brother who's not a Christian. I think it was one of the biggest things that kind of prevented him from going that direction because here's a whole movement that's attacking the family that he loves. Here's a movement that's attacking the church he grew up in. Here's a movement that's attacking the country that he knows is so important because we have relatives who died defending this country. You think he's going to go with that movement? No, that's a threat. So cultivating that family identity created that impression. Uh, a local identity, a national identity. Um, I think uh, getting involved maybe even in local, you know, becoming a volunteer fireman. Or, you know, some of these things might also be the road by which bad influences can come in. But here's the thing. You're never going to keep bad influences from, com- from coming in. So the, the, the wise thing I think to do is what my parents did was make sure that, at the appropriate times when your children are able to handle different things, that's when you, you give them those responsibilities. And you watch them and you see, can they handle this? If they can't, you pull them back. If you can't, you coach them. And, and so uh, we were very involved in soccer and in Boy Scouts and in band. And um, not everything was through the church. Uh, my brothers were in 4-H. Um, my, one of my brothers was a volunteer fireman. So like we, we were very involved in the community. We had a, a sense of community pride in a way and just... Um, we, we were with real people and all different kinds of people, elderly people. We went to do uh, elderly ministry, right? We just hand them, hand them hymnals. Uh, I, I remember giving one of my earliest messages was just my testimony for these elderly people at a convalescent home. That meant something, not just to them, but to us. Because I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now. You have a whole movement that's attacking old people. These old people are the problems, are the reason for all the problems in this country. All the racist, sexist things they did. It's harder now for someone who knows elderly people and has and can think about the people I know that I've talked to, that stories I've heard, and you develop a love and a trust, and you realize this is a cartoon. This isn't, this isn't, they're not all like that. So um, getting to know tangible, real people, engaging in charity. That's another one. Engage in charity. Uh, and that's just part of loving people. Um, I, I know I saw my dad when I was growing up many times, right, at a gas station. Someone would come up to him and I want money. My dad wouldn't give him money. My dad would fill up his tank or buy him a sandwich or something. That, that meant something. Seeing that, oh, my parents don't hate the poor, right? What the social justice warriors are saying about my parents, that they hate the poor. They're these white, suburban, horrible people because they take you know, vacations and you know, ride on boats and you know, this is so horrible. No, my, my parents, they, they actually love the poor. So um, I think that's important. Uh, cultivating discernment is big, right? Teaching them the truth, teaching them how to think. So when they hear lies, they can actually think through it. They're not just going to be emotionally swept away, but they're going to logically um, think through what's actually being said. And, and questions like, what are the alternatives to this? That's a big question. If you just ask that question, almost every leftist idea falls apart, right? You know, we need to do this right now for the environment, right? Well, what are the consequences of that? What are, are there alternatives to this? Like those two questions, if those were just asked, you know, but the left always presents, this is our solution. It's the only solution. You can't have any other solution. And if you don't take our solution, then you just hate people. <laughs> you're, you, you're, you must really want global warming or something. Well, at, teach kids to think. Uh, be real with children about flaws. Um, 
educate them on history. I already talked about this a little bit. And then in closing, I want to just point out some general observations that I've had about friends who have gone woke and then friends who didn't. So what I've noticed about my friends who went down the social justice path in college especially is that they lacked a family identity. Uh, dad was you know, always interested in his hobbies and his hobbies alone maybe. The kids didn't get the attention. Kids were, they just didn't have a strong family connection. Normally, they also have an ax to grind. There's some kind of resentment there that social justice can take advantage of. And, and so there, there's, um, things are swept under the rug. Problems aren't dealt with in the home. Resentment builds and it's never actually addressed. Well, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but legalism, sometimes homes can be very legalistic and that can create an un- impossible standard and it's never really talked about sometimes. And so kids can, can grow up thinking that they're never worth it. They can never get the favor that they want or they have to lie to get that favor. And they can be themselves. They're sinful selves when, when they and, – and have virtue, right, uh, in social justice. Um, there was a lack – I think a basic understanding was lacking of human nature uh, and history. So the grass is not always greener on the other side. We're all humans. If we create our utopia, it, it, it may sound good, but it's not because we're humans. And so if you understand human nature and understand history and how it demonstrates humans are humans – then you don't always fall for the next lie. Uh, I remember when the, the 2020 stuff was going on, right? And people were so shocked. They're like, we had slavery in this country. And I remember thinking like, yeah, like I've known about that since I was in elementary school. I've read about this. So, are we, did you hear this for the first time? Why, why are people shocked about this? But some people genuinely were. They weren't even prepared to deal with the emotional uh, narrative that they were being fed because they had never thought through it. Ultimately, I think what it all boils down to is there's an anger at God for their condition and the condition of the world. And instead of continuing to adopt what they see as, a, as the problem, as the vision of the world that's creating all the problems from their parents, they want to work towards utopia by any means necessary. And that justifies stealing, it justifies lying, but you can still be virtuous because it's for the revolution. So they, can, they have a, an ideology that will justify their sin and it will allow them to still be mad at God and the way he created things. Friends who didn't go woke, um, had strong families, engaged in service, were uh, in the community too, engaged in, in the community projects, loving the people around them, loving their neighbor. Uh, and they were proud of their identity. They didn't have, uh, everyone has some insecurity, I understand, but they did not have the insecurity issues that the social justice advocates pretty much all have once, I, once you get to know them. And I could say a lot more on that, but I'm out of time. So, um, so those are just some pieces of wisdom, hopefully, that, that will help. I, I don't, you know, I, I wish I had more that I could share that was maybe coming from um, someone who, you know, if I was 60 years old, uh, you know, uh, down the line, you know, 30 years later uh, from this point, I could look back and say, yep, I raised my kids and this is what we did. But this movement, uh, while it's nothing new, it is the intensity of it is new. Uh, this is, I mean, I, I can't believe some of like the, even the children's shows that friends have told me that, you know, they thought it was safe for their kids and then they're introducing homosexual characters or things like this. It's everywhere. And so I think a lot of parents are figuring this out. But we do have, we do have a template. We do have a model. We do have Deuteronomy. We do have principles in the word of God. And 
Um, the challenge may look a little differently. We can't take things for granted like we used to. Society's not going to support our Christian beliefs like it used to, but we certainly can still raise kids and, and responsible young adults uh, in a pagan culture. That is possible, but it does take work. So uh, that's all I had. Let's pray. And I think there's another session, if I'm not mistaken. What's the schedule say if you don't? If someone... Is it 3.30 now? Okay. Oh, so we have a break? Okay. So I guess you can do whatever you want. If anyone has questions, you can come up and, and I'll be happy to talk with you. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word and the principles that it gives us. And Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that in the end you win, Lord. I know I didn't mention that, but Lord, that is true. Thank you that you have guaranteed, Lord, that your coming is going to be victorious. Thank you, Lord, that all the rights, all the wrongs, I should say, will be righted. Thank you, Lord, that there is true justice in your kingdom, Lord, and we're looking forward so much to it. And Father, we pray for those um, who may be even on the minds of people in this room right now who have gone down a path of trying to find peace and security and com- all these things that, that in, in other contexts might be good, but they've tried to find them in ways that are not in accord with your word. I pray, Lord, you bring them back to you. We pray, Lord, for revival in this country and specifically in Boise, in the greater Boise area. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. For without him, Lord, we would have no forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but I've told friends who support and they're not supporting.
I never heard of it, the Countercultural Mom Show, the name of it. And that's like all they wanted to talk about was crew. Which oh. still, still, I was like, you know, I, I felt like they were exposed in 2019 and that crew 19, I don't know how, just that alone. I'm like, I don't have to show you anything else. Like, just look at this conference. Just listen to this clip. I had like an 11 minute you know, montage. And that's it for me. And But it's still a big controversy. Um, I, I will actually see Josh McDowell in person in June, and I'm going to ask him about it and find out. Somehow we're at the same conference, and, um, and he's kind of towed the line. Story, he's tried to like be in, have a foot in both worlds, so I want to find out from him, like, what's the deal with crew? They canceled them. But he's defended them and donated to enemies within the church, so we can't figure out. And then didn't they go back and get an apologist? Yeah. Yeah. He's claiming, I guess, it wasn't an apologist, so I don't know. But it, the fact that that even happened to me, I'm like, that's enough. I don't even know anything yeah. anymore. Leadership, yeah. you know. Yeah, the whole social stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the brand uh, something. Rich. I forget his name now. Yeah, Grant Park Hartley. And now he's, I don't think he's even, I think he's Orthodox now. The homosexual in his clips, who is, so he's not even an evangelical Christian anymore, which I'll have to Well, he got Beth Moore, he got Russell Moore, and you know, they're kind of left. Yeah. I wish they would have done it years ago. They had to do all this damage first. Yeah, so, well, it's good. I'm glad you <laughs> Oh, my pleasure. So you live in Boise, right? So I grew up in Southern California, and my kids went to college in California. And then when my husband and I retired, we wanted to get out of there. <laughs> so we came to Boise, and we left. So we've been here four years. But we still spend a lot of time in California. I'll be there in the next month. Where, where at? Uh, San Diego, and then oh, yeah. um, I'll be in LA. That's for sure. Oh. I was born in Anaheim. So oh, my, uh, yeah. my family all lives out there, and my, my aunt and my uncle was in the. Um, unfortunately, the, my grandfather died, and the circumstances were great. But uh, they, they said it was a COVID death, and we even got an autopsy. And literally, the county commissioner, health commissioner, overruled the autopsy and said it was a COVID death. And that what happened was they actually killed him. They gave him a lethal dose of blood thinners. He, he had a broken uh, leg, and they killed him. Yeah, they internally bled him out, and then the whole thing that they covered up. So we thought about suing, but I, I talked to a lawyer about it that is an expert on it, and he's like, look, he's like, it's California, they're all covering each other. There's really not much you can do in that case. So. Yeah, well, it, it is. 
They're living it too. Yeah, what's it, what's it like to be uh, called all these names and attacked when, you know, you, you from some person that you never will meet, like behind a keyboard somewhere? And I think it's nastier when it's someone you personally know in a church. I grew up, my dad was a pastor, so, but, but it still is challenging, and it, it was kind of unexpected in our life. So we've seen it as a huge blessing in one way, given us a lot of flexibility, and I've seen people helped all over the place, and that's, I see the Lord moving in that. Um, there's a sense of satisfaction in that, but I just, I want to, I want to be able to say that, because I want to be able to know that there is an out, and that that doesn't define, like, that's not everything about what I'm doing, and I, and I don't know that the Lord wants me doing it long term, I just don't know if it's healthy. So, um, the problem right now, though, is, so Amy and I were talking about this, we both thought when we started, like, we're going to whack this thing, and it's going to motivate all these other people, because we know this, and those other professors, they're going to come up, and they're going to punch it really hard. And like, and then we can just kind of fade away because it didn't happen. So we just kind of kept doing it, and, um, and, and that's the Lord. That's the Lord's will. You know, that, that it wound up the way it is. But I'm still hoping that there will be more people. There, you know, I, I never lose that hope. That like, there's a few that have. You know, Bodie Bachman has definitely stepped it up on this, which I'm really appreciative of. To some extent, John McCarthy. Man, I can't point to too many that I'm like, you know, they're really tracking this thing. Well, so, for such a time as this, I right. mean, really, you have motivated me and educated my Bible study group, so, our church, and whoever I know. And uh, it's, it's been, you know, Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for praying, too, I mean, for me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll just embrace it. And be like, but I think what will be good is just, I, I wanted to do church planning. That was my trajectory before this. And I might just do that and keep the podcast on the side. And, and it won't be as often. But people who want to, you know, be under preaching where I'm going to whack that stuff and I'm going to understand what those threats are, they can come out and wherever I am. So, yeah, and the book is so great. Yeah, well, I know you, there's other you. people, but it's so good yeah. to meet you. Well, we'll see. Yeah. 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 How's it going? We all can, we can all talk together. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. John. I'm Janice. Janice? Nice yeah. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming out. Um, my husband is David Ferris. Oh, yeah, okay. So, anyway, but I did want to thank you for putting all this down because. Um, the lady and I are always trying to, you know, talk to the young especially about, and, well, dads too, but, you know, that's not our ministry as much, just to help them because they always are asking us what we raise pretty, we raise, you know, kids that are saved, solid in the faith, and not going, and they're always asking us, and so just to have this really good. I don't know if it was David who <laughs> gave you the topic or who thought of it, but it's really good because... He gave me the title, I know that. The title. Okay. Yeah. So I think I think he came up with that actually. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's more general. It's not. Yeah, I know, but. Um, but yeah, it, well, it's. Well, I don't know that it has to be. Yeah. It needs to be general too, because you have to give them. Absolutely. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.